All right, and as we prepare our hearts for Mark chapter 4, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, the first 20 verses. I'm going to read, this is pretty long text, so I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and we'll cover the rest of the passage as we go. But as we do, we're coming around a corner where Jesus is about to explain the kingdom through a story, through a parable. This is meant to work on your imagination. It's meant to open your heart to the things of God. And so I want us to receive it in that way. Uh, you might have your Bibles, physical Bible. You might have it on your device. But if, if you choose to, try to do this. Close your eyes and listen to this scene as it's explained. And before we do it, uh, try to imagine the scene as the story was meant to be imagined. You can close your eyes, you can pretend you're right there on the scene in Capernaum, right by the, the shores of the Galilee. What does the, the water sound like as it's lapping against the rocks? What are the smells and the sights? What are the noises around you? What are the sensations? Put yourself right there in that scene and take this visual account, not only into your mind, but into your heart. This is what the gospel writer Mark says. He says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. May God give us ears to hear this morning. Amen? I love reading books. It's one of my favorite pastimes. All sorts of books, from the technical and the academic to the stories. And I have to say, of all the things to read, my favorite are stories. And a specific type of stories, I love fables. It's that short story that's there designed to impart to you some kind of takeaway, whether it's a moral or a few steps forward, and there's all sorts of kinds. There's, there's famous ones like The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. There's The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. All of these are told in fable form. They're stories meant to impart to you one, two, or three things to take away. There's the five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick Lencioni. Or there's right color, wrong culture by Pastor Brian Loritz. 
I love those types of books that are designed to impart something into your life through a fable or a story. And why wouldn't we like those things? It's because we want from both worlds. We want something that'll change our lives, something that we can take into the future, but we also love a good story. Whether you're five years old or 50 years old, nobody hates Pixar, right? Because it's not just giving you a way to look at your life, it's giving it to you in a compelling story. Is it any wonder that Jesus wasn't just a good preacher? He wasn't just a good prophet. He was a master storyteller. And his favorite stories were parables. And his parables were designed to teach you about the kingdom. And he's about to give us a parable. He's going to be giving us a lot of parables throughout the duration of the Gospel of Mark, which we've been in and will be in. But this is a special one. It's the longest one. It's perhaps the longest body of Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark just left unedited, untouched, uncommentated on. And it's also one of the few parables in which Jesus himself will explain what he means right after. And I want to give you two things to think through this as we go through this incredible parable about the sower sowing seeds. The first one, just some context for you, the first one is that parables are always meant to shake things up, just get you a little rattled, make you a little bit uncomfortable. And that's often in contrast to a typical conventional proverb. Conventional proverbs are often meant to reinforce the status quo. They're meant to keep things as they are. I remember a few weeks ago eating some uh, takeout with my family. We all got these fortune cookies, the last vestige of that particular uh, corner of San Francisco culinary culture. And we opened up one, uh, I opened up my fortune cookie, and they're meant to be broad enough that they can apply to pretty much anyone that reads them, but close enough to home that it feels like it's speaking directly to you. I opened the fortune cookie. I forget what it said, but it was something like, keep doing the thing you were doing, and eventually what you're doing will get done. And I was like, oh, that's so true. Oh, my goodness. I need to frame this thing on my mantle. They're meant to be broad, and they're meant to just affirm what you're already doing in life. Not the case with Jesus' parables. Jesus' parables are meant to jostle you a little bit. They come from this assumption that your life is not complete apart what, uh, from what Jesus has to say. And so they're meant to shake you a little bit, wake you up. They can be unsettling, disturbing, sometimes even ominous or shocking, because they're there to alert people to the new and disturbing thing God is doing in their midst as the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus Christ, are breaking into the world around them, displaying his righteousness, his joy, his goodness, and his justice for the masses. Parables are meant to shake things up. They're also not always easy to understand. And what we're going to find is that it's only in fellowship with Jesus do his parables disclose the kingdom of God? So there's your backdrop. And now let's get into some of the meat by which Jesus explains the kingdom of God. He starts off by talking about what the parable is about. He says in verse 13 and 14, and this is where I'll need you to follow along with your Bibles with me. Verse 13 and 14. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? So already right there, we have a hint. All of Jesus' parables are about the same thing. And then he gives us what might be the headline for his parable, this particular one. The sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. Everything he's going to be talking about from this point on is about the sower sowing the word. It's not even so much about the sower as it is what's being sown. This is a parable about the word. Now, what is the word? Was that the Holy Spirit? Maybe. The sower sows the word. The word that Mark uses here is the Greek word logos. You might have heard that word thrown around here and there. It has a deep, rich, variegated meaning. It means literally words, but is usually used in context to refer to a deep body of words. Sometimes it means the scriptures, the word of God. Other times it could just mean a particular message. Uh, John, the apostle in his gospel, will take it to its highest meaning and apply it to Jesus. In the beginning was the logos, the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. But in the gospel of Mark, it takes on its own meaning under the umbrella of some of those other things. It refers to the gospel message of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says the sower sows the word, he's saying the word that's being sown is this good news about the kingdom. We know this because that's one of the first thing Mark told us in chapter one, right? With your Bibles, look with me very quickly in chapter one, verse 15. It says in verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So right there we see the gospel is God's kingdom coming close to you and me. That's the good news. That's what Jesus is fired up about. That's what John the Baptist came to unveil. This is the best news the world has ever heard. It is, after all, called the gospel according to Mark. Mark is giving his perspective about this incredible thing breaking through into our world in Jesus Christ. It's also called the gospel, which means the good news. The good news that Jesus was all about proclaiming was how God's will, his rule, his goodness, his joy, his blessing were breaking into the darkness and confusion of our world and what that means for us. That also means that this is an ongoing, encapsulating thing. It's not something that happens once in our life. For example, some of you may, you may say, I'm a Christian, and you would define that as being, I made a decision about the gospel. Maybe that was in 1987, maybe that was in 2001, maybe that was today. But it was a decision you made according to the gospel. But the gospel is bigger than that. It isn't something that happens once. It's not a decision. It's an announcement of something incredible. It's something that encapsulates your life. It would be like if somebody came in on the scene and they were like, I just discovered the cure for death. That's good news. Now, you might make a decision based off of that good news. You might say, I'm going to go skydiving. But that's one decision. After you went skydiving, you would go on to make many more decisions. You would rearrange your life, right, around the best news you've ever heard. There's no more death. 
It's the same with the gospel. Some of us in this parking lot, once upon a time, we made a decision to follow Jesus because we believe the gospel. But the gospel is also something that encapsulates our life. To those of us that heard, gosh, this is the best news I've ever heard in my life. I want to spend the rest of my life rearranging my life around this Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And this is what Jesus is doing. This is his mission. And in this parable, he explains three different reactions to that good news of the kingdom. Reactions that anyone can have at any time. And I'm going to give you those three challenges, those three reactions, kind of on the front end, and we'll go into each of them. But the reactions are spiritual opposition, the devil, our environment, and ourselves. Look at verse 13 through 15 with me. It says, these are the ones, speaking about a group of people, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear the word of the kingdom, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, in the other examples, you'll see a different kind of hearing. They hear and they receive, or they hear and they accept. Notice in this first one, they don't have time to do anything. They hear it, and it's immediately stolen. What is this? Jesus is, is describing for us the, real, the reality of that spiritual opposition. Peter tells us that, that Satan is like a roaring lion, roaming around, seeking somebody whom he can devour. He's looking for somebody to devour, and one of the ways that he does that is by stealing the deposit that Jesus has put in you or invested in you. This can take all sorts of different forms. Maybe you've encountered this, that one time you tried to share your faith with somebody, and it was like it, it just kind of ricocheted off the wall of their heart. I remember in 2006, I think it was 2006, when I first got born again at Reality Carpinteria, and my whole world was changed. I immediately went on this like short-term trip to Sri Lanka and was discipled in like two weeks and I just saw God doing all of this stuff and I came back and everything was different for me. All the things that I used to want to do, they were done. It wasn't even a desire in my heart and I immediately went out, uh, invited one of my best friends to Freebirds in Isla Vista to tell him everything that happened. We sat there with one of those giant $12 burritos eating and for two hours, I preached to my best friend. That was probably my first mistake. Two-hour sermons are never good. But I was just so pumped. I, I, my life was changed, you guys. And I had to tell him. He was my best friend. And I remember saying, like, gosh, like, this thing happened in my heart. I got bored again. I was crying. The Spirit of God fell on me. He's just got his eyes are like, you're crazy, dude. And then I remember starting from Genesis all the way through Revelation explaining to my best friend why Jesus was the Messiah and how everything pointed to him. And I felt at the end of that, like, I got this locked and loaded. This guy is in the kingdom, bro. And I said, how about it? Do you believe this? How about it? Let's, let's do this together. Do you want to follow Jesus for the rest of your life? Took a bite of his carne asada and he's like, you know, that works for you, but I'm just not feeling it. It's not for me. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, how could you resist that? That was like my first sermon. How could you resist two-hour sermon? But he did. 
I wouldn't understand this until later, but Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's, sometimes it's not people's fault. That there is a spiritual adversary that is out to get them. We, we talked about this last week with the strong man. Mark calls the devil the strong man, and he's, he's got all of this plunder, the, the souls of men and women. But there is a stronger man, amen, who plunders the devil's house. What does that mean? He steals. He takes what is rightfully his. And in this parking lot and at home on the live stream are people who have been taken from the devil by Jesus Christ. But there is a spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the eyes of the non-believer so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so there's a spiritual opposition in which people just can't see, and it takes an enlightenment by the Holy Spirit. What Jesus would describe in the Gospel of John as being born again. You just see. And so for my brothers and sisters who've ever had to tell a relative about God or talk to a coworker about God or if you yourself have struggled to see the things of God, know that it's, it's not just up to you. There's something deeper happening in the spiritual realm. But that's also good news because two verses later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but the God who, is, who can shine a light into a dark place has revealed a light in our hearts, revealing Jesus Christ. But that's one of the things that causes us not to see, is the devil. But it doesn't stop there. We also have an environment that's difficult. Look at verse 16 through 17. It says, here's another group of people, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So now there's like, a, there's like a step forward in the right direction. They hear it, and they're like, yes, Jesus, I love this. Let's do it. I want to go to church, read my Bible, serve in ministry. Yeah. And there's like this initial excitement and belief in the things of God. But in verse 17, it says, but they have no root in themselves. And they endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, when tribulation or persecution or relational drama or pandemics or social isolation or difficulty or sickness arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. In other words, the problem here is that there's no root. You can think of that first stage of following Jesus for a lot of us almost like a honeymoon stage. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Just you open the Bible and like the words are like magic. It's like God is speaking to you. And then you're praying and it feels like you have this connection with God. Any of you ever felt that in those first stages? It's like it's wonderful. You feel like your life has been changed. All your Christian relationships are good. There's no drama. Nobody does anything wrong. Church is perfect. And you live in that, and you're like, this is what I imagined Christianity to be. Yay! And then the honeymoon stage wears off, and people are drama. You're like, sometimes people in the church are the most drama. Not any of you, though. You're all great. 
and you read the Bible and it doesn't, it doesn't feel relevant sometimes or it feels like the words are just falling like bricks onto the ground. Your prayer life is dry. Life gets busy and you suffer. And you wonder, does any of this matter? And it says immediately that group of people fall away. And the problem here is not necessarily in our feelings. The solution we should see is just old-fashioned discipleship. That the honeymoon stage is good. It serves a purpose. It's there to wake us up and give us momentum. But at a certain point, hopefully immediately, we've got to do that hard work of discipleship where we plug into the less romantic things of our walk with God. We got to hold ourselves accountable to people in a group of deep, meaningful spiritual connections. We serve together. We be a part, we're a part of meaningful community. We do the hard lifting of the spiritual life in Christ, the stuff that builds a foundation so that when the difficulties in life come our way, we are not just being anchored and held by the honeymoon stage, which doesn't last. We realize I have a deep foundation. And even if everything around me crumbles, I know that what I'm doing right now is, is the right thing. I know in whom I serve. I do not need to be anchored in my feelings, which are fleeting, but in the Messiah who rose from the dead on my behalf. Jesus says that without those roots, everything's good until things are not good. And when persecution arises, they immediately fall away. This could be unbelief. It could be skepticism. It could be suffering. It could be your life just falling apart. And then lastly, the, the last one is ourselves. This is the other challenge. I love how Jesus sneaks this one in there because I sometimes have a tendency to think that everything wrong with my life is the devil or my environment. And Jesus, almost as though he's reading my mind, is like, and the third one is you. Look at what he says, verse 18 through 19. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. I love how he... he compares me to a bunch of thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Notice all of these things come from the heart, from, from our own heart, overcome by worry and desires, overcome by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, desire for stuff, the consumerism, the stuff that's in our minds that starts to choke out what's in our heart. When we're overwhelmed by the news and that takes over everything in our lives. When we're obsessed with our political tribe and that's all we can think about. When we're jealous and lustful and craving and it begins to push out the deeper things that Jesus wants to do in us. In other words, this last one is simply sometimes we just don't feel like following Jesus. Perhaps you can relate to that. I think I can too. But we see from this parable that the battle for your soul and your life takes place on three different fronts. We could say it's spiritual opposition, it's the devil. We could say it's the world. Now in the Bible, there's, the world also has a lot of different angles. It can mean the globe, the planet. It can mean the population of people. It could also mean just the, the fallen spirit of the age. 
And that's what, that's what he's talking about here. The devil, the world, and ourselves. Imagine a Venn diagram where the devil, the world, and your wicked self are just intersected, and there's a part of all of those that is trying to keep you from the fullness of God's kingdom in your life. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Read yourself right there. Following the course of this world, there's the world, and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, there's the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is not known for his bedside manner. But I love how he just cuts to the chase. He leaves no room for us to be victimized. To say, well, he, he, do, he doesn't even say it's hard for you because of your sin. It's borderline impossible. But you can try. He says you were dead. You were dead. How easy is it for a dead person to lift a finger on their own behalf? It's impossible. You were dead in your sins, following the course of the world, influenced by the spirit of the age and the devil. But here's what I also love about Paul. He never stops there. And right after that barrage, that reality of everything that we face, come the two best words humanity has ever heard. But God. Yeah, you were dead. You were, you, you were dead. You were alone. You were a tragedy waiting to happen. But God. Can somebody turn to someone next to you and just say, but God. The two best words you have ever heard this morning. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. He didn't even need us to be alive to ask him for permission. He did this on his own accord. He did this by his own love and mercy. He came after you whether you wanted him to or not. But God, rich in mercy, with great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Can I get an amen? And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places. I love that part because it means God wasn't just satisfied to save you from your sins and stick you in the corner so that you wouldn't break stuff in his living room. He also made you ride shotgun in his pickup truck. He was like, I'm going to seat you where you belong in heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You were loved by God before you even looked in his general direction. You were aggressively, viciously, unremittingly, tenaciously pursued by what Martin Luther would call the hound of heaven. He pursues you. 
And he never stopped to ask for your permission. But you do have the opportunity to respond to his pursuit with a different kind of hearing. And this is true of those of you who have never, don't, maybe don't consider yourself a Christian or maybe you're not sure. To those of you who have been walking with Jesus for 50 years, the response for all of us is the same. A different kind of hearing. It says in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, but those, somebody say, but those. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Exponential growth and power displayed in their life. Now, in the English, it just says hearing like it did in the other examples, but in the Greek, there's a slight change in tenses. The first three types of hearing, where the devil steals our environment, uh, wipes away, and our desires choke out, that kind of hearing all has a past decisive tense, meaning it's the type of hearing that is one and done, if I can use that phraseology. It implies a quick, superficial hearing. What we might say is in one ear and out the other and takes no effort or heeding. And perhaps you resonate with this a little bit. Maybe you at one point heard the gospel. Maybe it was at church or through a friend or by a coworker or as you were reading scripture or at some event. And you were like, yes, this is awesome, honeymoon. But you have been living your life without any meaningful connection to God's word, his activities, or his desires. Maybe you're a Christian. You've been living as a Christian by name and title only for decades. But there's no real change or ongoing response. And you feel a sense of dryness. You feel like there's something more for you. Well, I got good news for you. But God has something more for you. And I want to invite you, rather Jesus wants to invite you, through his own words, to a fourth kind of hearing and listening. This fourth kind of hearing, when he says, these are the ones who hear the word, is in the present tense. And the present tense in Greek has this ongoing quality. It's something that's happening right now, not back then. And it's something that has a continual flavor to it. It refers to someone who is continually and ongoingly actively paying attention to a word that isn't static in the, in the past, but that has come alive in their hearts. It almost indicates a kind of ownership over what is spoken, as though Jesus, with his living word, speaks to you, and you take it, and it becomes yours marinating and percolating in your heart until it changes your life. That's what's happening. And Jesus says to the person who does that, the result of that seed that gets sown is in good soil, will have 30, 60, 100-fold return. It'll be exponential growth. Now, what's he talking about again? The good news of the kingdom. He's saying the kingdom will be put on display in your life and change your life and everybody around you, your family, your neighborhood, your workplace. In fact, Jesus would say this in Mark chapter 4. Later on in Mark chapter 4, he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's really tiny. 
It makes you want to say like, is that really that big of a deal? Is that really that important? It's like this big. He says, but when you plant it, it becomes so large in that garden, it takes on its own ecosystem. The kingdom of God will take on its own ecosystem in your life where people start moving in your general direction because they see that you have something that they need. I think what we can gather from this parable, I want to ask the Robert and the rest of the team to come back up here as we respond through song, is that Jesus can transform you himself. He doesn't need our tips and tricks. He doesn't need our five life hacks. He can transform you by himself. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women, he says. All you got to do is stay close and stay attentive and he'll do the rest. Now, what does that look like for you and me? Well, I think for some of you, maybe you've never made the decision to follow after Jesus and now you're compelled to do so. I want to invite you to one of the first things that Jesus tells us to do is to get baptized. We're actually going to do baptisms at the beach right after this. There's some people already getting baptized. What is that? That's the first step in, in crystallizing in your heart on the outside what Jesus is already doing on the inside. Some of you, the Holy Spirit is reaching out to you right now and he's saying, I want you for myself. I want to invite you to begin that process of following Jesus by getting baptized with a bunch of others. For others, you've already made that decision. You're walking with Jesus and you're asking this question, what's next for me? And I want to invite you to not give up, but to step into this active listening that Jesus calls us to. An active, engaged, ongoing, continual listening. And this could be very simple. I want to make it simple and practical and tangible. It could be as easy as when you sit down for lunch today, as you're talking with friends or family, to pause for a second to still your heart and intentionally place yourself in the presence of God and ask, Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? Or what are you doing in my midst right now? That's it. Instead of relying on a past experience 10, 20 years ago, recognizing that God is here in the present and he's with you and he's speaking to you. It could be as simple as pausing throughout the day at work, at a meal with friends and saying, what are you saying to me, Jesus? And getting in the habit of opening your heart to the presence of God. The key to this text is found in verse 10 and 11 when it says, when Jesus was alone, those around him with the 12 disciples asked him about the parables around Jesus. And what did he say to them? Same thing he says to you. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This ain't something you got to reach for. This is the gift of the almighty God for the person that wants to receive it. Jesus has given the kingdom to you. All you got to do is spend time with him and allow him to unravel the riches of that kingdom in your life as you listen. I hope you receive that from him as a gift today because he loves you with all of his heart.
He died on the cross for your sins to remove those obstacles to get you close to him. And he rose again that you would experience new life. So what are you waiting for? Let's respond now through song and begin now by intentionally placing ourselves in the presence of God who is already here by his Holy Spirit. Respond to him with lyric and song and respond to him by actively listening.